The prevalence of vaping has rapidly increased in the United States, especially among adolescents. As clinicians, it is important that we stay up to date on the latest information pertaining to vaping. By doing so, we can improve our ability to appropriately identify and treat nicotine use disorders related to vaping and educate our patients. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is a special episode from the Carlat Report's Addiction Treatment Team. I'm Noah Caperso, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Addiction Treatment Report. I'm an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine and an attending psychiatrist at the West Haven Veterans Administration Hospital. And in this episode, Dr. Kalia Murthy and I will discuss the latest developments in vaping now that devices have been widely available in the American market for 15 years. But first, let's talk about some exciting news. You can now receive CME credit for listening to our podcast episodes. Earn CME credit for listening to this episode by subscribing to our podcast CME product. Subscriptions come with access to the CME post-test for almost 40 of our previous episodes, and you'll be able to receive credit for every future episode as well. Click the link in the episode description to sign up for a new CME product, and if you're already a subscriber, there's a link in the description to the CME post-test for this episode. Now, here's a preview of a CME question for this episode. In a study by the UK's National Health Service, what was concluded about switching patients from regular combustible cigarettes to e-cigarettes or vaping devices for smoking cessation? A, the majority of patients quit smoking entirely. B, the majority of patients continued to smoke regular combustible cigarettes. C, the majority of patients no longer smoked regular combustible cigarettes, but smoked e-cigarettes or vaping devices at lower doses than before. D, the majority of patients no longer smoked regular combustible cigarettes, but smoked e-cigarettes or vaping devices at equal to or higher doses than before. The January-February issue of the Carlat Addiction Treatment Report contains an interview with Dr. Kalia Murthy. He finished medical school in India, followed by an adult psychiatry residency and child psychiatry fellowship at the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. Following his child psychiatry fellowship, he completed an addiction psychiatry fellowship at Yale and is now an attending psychiatrist at the Children's National Medical Hospital in Washington, D.C. Dr. Kalia Murthy. How did you become interested in the topic of vaping? So with regards to the topic today, I have been following this whole e-cigarette and vaping situation since about 2016, which is when I had my addiction psychiatry rotation. And I went to a conference and the first thing I noticed was everyone outside the conference kind of using these big devices and blowing big plumes of smoke and or vapor. And that I'm kind of a bit of a technophile, so it kind of really made me kind of investigate what these devices were and learn more about them and really start looking at why were people using it and what are the pros and cons. And this was 2016. And once I started my child fellowship, that's when the whole, I kind of was following this particular issue peripherally. And then when I started my child psychiatry fellowship, I kind of had like noticed this increase in vaping use among adolescents, especially like on the inpatient unit, they were coming in and they were going into withdrawal from the nicotine. And I think the general public are also catching up on this topic, but nobody really knew what to do. And I, had, I was a bit ahead of the curve, having 
been following these devices peripherally. So I started learning more about this particular topic and started like campaigns in schools within the hospital with the pediatrics team trying to help them more proactively ask questions and treat the nicotine withdrawal symptoms. And even before this, I, I knew I wanted to do addiction psychiatry. I came of came to the addiction psychiatry angle from a more digital perspective. Uh, one of my other interests is um, how humans interact with the digital media, uh, internet and technology, etc. And I kind of wanted to learn about that from an addiction angle, from a behavior perspective. So I had these multiple interests and e-cigarette kind of fit in between with the technology piece and the substance and also using the digital media for advertisement, etc. So that's really what happened with regards to my interest. And now I'm at APT Foundation. I, I see a wide range of patients, adolescents, adults, and older adults as well. And I'm noticing that even in my clinic, it's a methadone clinic and a buprenorphine clinic primarily, but a lot of my adult patients are switching from regular combustible cigarettes, as we call them, to these e-cigarettes or vapes. And I have been actively working with my patients, trying to figure out if this is good for them, what are the pros and cons, etc. Give us a rundown of available vaping products and tell us why it's important for providers to understand how these devices function. So... There's a wide variety of products out there and range of different kinds of devices, but they all have certain components that are common to them. So all e-cigarettes and these electronic vaping devices have a battery, which they can be rechargeable or use and throw, and they provide different amounts of energy in terms of wattage. And then they all have an atomizer or a coil. This is essentially the heating element that then heats the liquid and turns it into vapor. And you can change the resistance and the kind of metal used in these atomizers. And then you have the e-juice, which is the actual liquid that these heating elements then heat up and turns into vapor. Then finally, the cartridge. The cartridge in some of these devices can come with the liquid and the coil or the atomizer inside it. And some of these cartridges just contain the liquid alone or the e-juice. It's an industry on its own that runs parallel with Big Tobacco, and they are catching up in terms of market share. And it's huge. There's a lot of different products out there. So for purposes of, from the clinic and research perspective, we have started classifying them as open system products and closed system products. Can you talk more about what open system products and closed system products are? From the closed system products, these are things like Sigalikes, they call them. These are the first generation ones. They look like traditional cigarettes. These are present back in like 2007, all over the shelf. A lot of us saw those. And then the open system products came into being, they were the vape pens. They were more like your traditional longer cylindrical devices that you could switch the parts around. And then you had the mods. The mods essentially stands for modifications. These were those huge tank-like devices that we see Then the closed system devices kind of became more prominent with the pod-based devices and the disposable e-cigarettes. Now, a closed system device is essentially something that the manufacturer predetermines every aspect of the device, the battery, the power, the kind of atomizer you have, the the resistance in it, and the e-juice concentrate. So as a consumer in this closed system, they really don't have a lot of flexibility. 
the manufacturers like this is the setting this these are the concentrations you can either use it or not mm-hmm. with open system devices there's a lot more flexibility you you have more ability to change the settings on the battery the atomizer coils the e juice concentrations etc researching vaping devices can be difficult due to their lack of standardization and just sheer diversity with new ones being developed all the time and Big Tobacco has gotten into the game in the past several years, realizing that there are big profits to be had. One important distinction is the difference between salt and freebase forms of nicotine. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yes, sure. The nicotine, as we know, it's, it's, it comes from plants. It's a naturally occurring parasympathomimetic. So over the centuries, the tobacco companies have always been trying to find a way to deliver more nicotine to sell more products. And they tried different means to do it. Back in the day, they used to add ammonia and and other elements to the nicotine to make it more alkaline so as to make it more potent. Now, in about 2014, 2015, when the pod-based companies came about, given that they changed how the nicotine was being delivered into the body, they developed nicotine salts. By They lowered the pH of nicotine to make it more acidic and then converted into salt forms. And uh, what happened was that early studies showed that when you have nicotine salt that is being delivered through these vaping devices, the blood nicotine concentration is higher than what you get from a regular cigarette. But we also saw that it also decreases at a rapid rate. So you have a rapid upward spike in blood nicotine concentration and a downward trend in the blood nicotine concentration with the nicotine salt. And what this means is that we know like in addiction psychiatry that any substances that tends to do that, it causes the euphoric effects faster and then it leaves the system faster, can have negative affective states and that can lead to more addictive potential. So that's what happened with the pod-based system and nicotine salt particularly. And right now, in terms of products out there in the vapes, you can either choose free base or nicotine salt. To clarify, a pod is just another term for a cartridge. A pod is the container that holds the e-juice. The e-juice predominantly contains either propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin, which is the liquid that the nicotine is dissolved into. In closed system devices, the manufacturer determines the e-juice components, while in open system devices, users can assemble their own mix. One component of e-juice that we should touch on is flavorants. Tell us about them and why can they be so problematic? So flavors have really changed the landscape. When even the pod-based companies came out, they were offering a multitude of flavors. At one point, mango flavor was the most popular flavor of um, e-cigarette juice out there. So the FDA has been more recently cutting, like clamping down on the access to flavors. Uh, the reason being flavors are seem to be particularly marketed towards adolescents. And uh, we, know, we have early studies now that show that when you add flavors to the nicotine, what happens is the dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens is it's more. So you have regular nicotine and then you have a, a product with flavorings plus nicotine. And the sweeter the flavor, we know that the response in the nucleus accumbens is more. And we hypothesize that this means that the addictive potential is also more. Mm-hmm. So that's always concerning with regards to flavors. And they also tend to market unique flavor names to appeal to uh, younger generations, especially your vape shops have like flavor. Like I've come across flavors called like unicorn puke or Hulk tears. 
I mean, you hear the names and I'm, I'm, I'm working in like an emergency room in a children's hospital and I know they're vaping, kids are vaping and they tell me, they don't know what they're vaping, but it, this is what it's called. And I'm automatically thinking, why would an adult buy a product called Unicorn Puke or Hulk? Years. Some adults do. That's different. But when you think about the broader spectrum on who they're trying to target, these are concerns that come up with flavors. Another issue is that each flavorant chemical confers its own risks, and many of them haven't been thoroughly studied. We do know that cinnamon and menthol in particular can be cytotoxic to stem cells, at least in vitro. Since the available components are constantly changing, it's best to play it safe and recommend that our patients avoid using chemical flavorants in their e-juice. It's becoming increasingly popular to modify open system devices. What are some of the modifications that clinicians should be aware of? So we tend to see modifications most commonly in like children and adolescents. They tend to be more drawn to the technology of things and and also limited means, which means they have to really think out of the box to make sure, like try different things and see what's the end results are. So one of the most common modifications we see is called dripping. And what this means is that kids, they tend to directly drop the e-juice onto the coil. By like they, they can either remove the devices or now you can actually buy these devices called RDAs. They're called rebuildable uh, dripping atomizers that you can use to modify your device. And you drop the liquid directly onto the coil to produce the vapor to inhale the aerosol and my patients tell me like that this tends to be more flavorful for them which i'm not entirely sure what that means from the aerosol and some people tell me that this is the better way to get that euphoric effect if it is cannabis they call it dripping some people when they use cannabis on it they call it dabbing as well when they use high concentrate cannabis on the coil directly what are some differences between vaping cannabis versus nicotine so in terms of differences itself, there's not a lot. Any of these devices that are used to vape uh, nicotine can also be used to vape cannabis. And you find these products now available in your dispensaries, both the medical dispensaries and the recreational dispensaries. Also, these are available on the streets to say that when you're not buying it from a legitimate source. So the issue with THC is that or not the issue, but the difference with THC is that uh, when, especially this I notice more in adolescents, when they want to vape, this is a more easily concealable manner in which they can vape THC versus using their regular flower and bud, making a joint or however they're going to do it. Because number one, the paraphilia itself is like quite easy to conceal and the smoke that it emits is low and it also has less odor. And all these properties together make it an easier habit for them to pick up without having to manage the consequences, especially in schools and at home. This is the major difference with uh, THC and uh, like regular use of THC. And the other concern is that more and more people are moving towards using cannabis concentrates in these products. The reason being when they go and try to buy these products, they're told these are cannabis concentrates. They have more concentration of THC in them up to more than 80% at times. And they're often told that because it is higher, you might be using less of cannabis overall. But And some people might actively seek out high concentrate products. Uh, but in long term, we know that when the THC concentration is that high, that leads to more negative consequences from cannabis. 
Exactly. And that's what I tell my patients. The more THC you're exposed to, the higher the risk of adverse effects. A recent study showed that THC serum levels were significantly higher in patients who consumed cannabis by vaping concentrates versus smoking. Probably the most common scenario that I encounter in the clinic is patients trying to quit smoking combustible tobacco. Should we recommend vaping to them instead? This is a, a tricky topic because I'm noticing, and I'm, we're waiting for the data to come out, but more adult patients are switching to vaping. And oftentimes this conversation does not happen in the clinic. They see their friends and they see that, oh, my friend switched from cigarettes to vaping and they stopped using cigarettes. And I often see my patients, they walk into the clinic and they have something like a pen drive hanging around their neck and I have to ask them what that is. And then they tell me what's really going on. So I've had conversations about this with patients. So I really, it really comes down to, again, what are the patient's goals? Uh, patients I, I usually are clear about their goals. They either want to quit smoking completely or they are just looking to quit the combust. Like they, they don't want to quit the nicotine. They just want to quit the combustible cigarette use. So I try to identify that goal with the patient first. And if it is to quit smoking, I tell them we have evidence-based medicines to help with that. And I usually recommend that they try that first. But I also tell them at the end of the day, if they were to decide to go down this route, there are some specific informations that they need to know. And some of that is what we already talked about with the closed system versus open system. And I specify that uh, there are other countries in the world where vapes are used for smoking cessation, particularly the UK's NHS does recommend e-cigarettes as an alternative and as a smoking cessation tool. But their marketplace is well-regulated, and it is very different from the US where we don't have similar regulations. So I tell my patients if their goal is only to stop combustible cigarette use, and they're okay with continuing nicotine, and they're not looking to do like be an artisanal vapor try different products, do smoke tricks. They should really stick to simple devices, devices that they know are of good quality and they know that they're easily available and they are within their economic means because these devices can be expensive depending on what kind of products you use. And also just not modifying them because that can also lead to unknown harms. So I usually recommend these things. And I also tell them to watch out for the nicotine concentration and the e-juice. Oftentimes, our patients are given false information. For example, we know that a pack of cigarette can contain anywhere. Like a pack of cigarette usually contains 20 cigarettes. And one cigarette usually can, on average, contain about 10 milligrams of nicotine, which makes it about 200 milligrams of nicotine per pack of cigarettes. But we know that when you smoke that one cigarette with 10 milligrams of nicotine, only about one to two milligrams of nicotine actually end up in your bloodstream. So at the end, you're getting about 20 to 22 milligrams of nicotine per pack of cigarette that's ending up in your bloodstream. So when our patients are presented with the information, a pack of cigarettes contains 200 milligrams of nicotine. This pod only contains 50 milligrams of nicotine. So you're essentially cutting down on your nicotine. That is not accurate. I tell them about what actually ends up in their bloodstream and how we really don't know, like depending on the setting in these devices, the, the, there's changes in the blood nicotine concentration and it is more so with the nicotine salt. So I give them this information and tell them to always try the lower dose nicotine first and only increase if they feel like they're having cravings. 
and not start off with a higher dose so that they kind of know where they are. And I also tell them often, I've seen patients who start off on these devices, their device either breaks or they're not able to buy refills and then they go back to smoking cigarettes, but now they end up smoking more cigarettes because they need more nicotine. So that risk is always present for a lot of these patients. So this is the conversation that I have with patients. So you're saying to make sure that patients understand that the number of milligrams of nicotine in combustible cigarettes and vaping devices is not necessarily one-to-one. And you mentioned artisanal vapors. What's that? I mean, a lot of times it's it, this is more in young adults and adolescents rather than adults. And this is similar to any, it's like a subculture on its own. A lot of times it's more about psychoeducation. A lot of times our patients don't have the right information. And we ourselves don't have the right information because this is still relatively new. Uh, we've only, these products have only been around for about 14, 15 years at this time. So I try to provide them with all the information they need. What are the risks involved? And I think that's the most that I can do when I think about it from a patient-centered care is that they are aware of what it is that they're exactly getting into, and how this can then affect their physical and mental health. Can you give us a rundown of some of the evidence for vaping products in terms of helping patients quit smoking? So most of the evidence at this point comes from the UK's NHS system. They're the ones that are actively looking at it. So what they found was that When patients switch from regular combustible cigarettes to e-cigarettes or vaping devices, at the end of one year, most of those patients had stopped using combustible cigarettes, but they were still continuing to use the e-cigarettes. So if that's the outcome, then there's promise to using this as a smoking cessation tool. And that is the biggest evidence that we have. There was a paper that came out recently. I don't have the numbers on top of my head, but there was just a larger sample size and they still showed that most patients who were able to switch to these e-cigarettes were able to successfully stop the combustible cigarette use. But again, they were still continuing to use the e-cigarettes and vapes. A few of them did were able to stop the e-cigarettes as well, but majority of the patients at the one-year interval were still using the e-cigarettes. And how do the long-term effects of e-cigarettes compare to combustible tobacco? So the heterogeneity that I spoke about with the open system and closed system makes it harder, especially in the U.S., to kind of look at the harm-term risks. But like I said, it's only been around since 2007 when it became commercially available in the U.S. So when we think of long-term data for tobacco and cigarettes have been around for like many, many decades at this time. So we're still catching up. We really don't know. And uh, we really don't know what are all the long-term consequences at this time. And uh, we will hopefully find out in the next 10 years or so. It doesn't mean there isn't any harms either. It's just a question of comparing cigarettes versus e-cigarettes, which is less harmful. And Anecdotally, most patients tell me that they're able to breathe better. So subjectively, at least, they're noticing some differences in their physical health, which is always good from a patient perspective. But without knowing the long-term risk, it's just very difficult to say one is better than the other. Vaping THC has been associated with serious lung injuries, specifically E-Valley, E-V-A-L-I, which stands for E-Cigarette or Vaping Use Associated Lung Injury. It was big news a few years ago. Can you tell us about E-Valley? 
Absolutely. So this happened in 2019. This was a big concern. We had a rapid uptick in patients presenting with lung injury sometime in August, and it kind of peaked in September, and we saw a downward trend after that. So essentially, these were patients who were presenting with very um, with lung injury with no underlying cause that could be detected, except that they all had a history of using a vaping device. Now, the CDC had been kind of tracking all these cases, and they only did it till February 2020. Unfortunately, there was no single ingredient that was identified by federal authorities that they said this was directly responsible for the e-cigarette on vaping-associated lung injury. What they did say was that a majority of these patients, the common characteristics where they had used a vape that was specifically for THC, and a majority of them had vitamin E acetate as a product in their cartridge. And they also were bought on the streets. They were not bought from sources like dispensaries. So these were the common characteristics of the vapes. And there was also a specific term they used called dank mods. And these were the devices that they associated having more risk for developing the lung injury. And I think we had approximately, as of February 2020, uh, about 3,000 cases of this disease, and about 68 people died at that time. We don't have any updated data since then. And there's also geographical differences within the U.S. We know that most of these cases were in Texas and Illinois, followed by California and New York. And Connecticut and Massachusetts had about 100 or so cases, which is where we live. So. Uh, this was a general uh, pattern of this, and it was primarily a disease of exclusion at the end of the day. And with the COVID pandemic, we really haven't been doing a good job of tracking these cases. The current data is mostly field notes that the CDC releases of case reports here and there. But I think the last few case reports are primarily from California. What are some other specific safety concerns that you worry about with patients who are using these products? So the first two immediate ones are like would be the vaping associated lung injury. And the second one is nicotine toxicity on its own, because if they're using high nicotine product, that can lead to toxicity. Apart from that, more specifically, like it depends on products. So if you come down to the products, if they're, they're using like rechargeable batteries, there have been cases of batteries catching fire or bursting uh, when they were using it and it causes facial injuries. So these are the three acute concerns. And then the storage itself, once these pod-based devices and these uh, e-liquids became more prevalent, there's increased phone calls to toxicology centers for either kids having drinks of these um, liquids or pets accidentally getting into their supplies and drinking it. And that has caused injuries and death even in specific cases. So those are like the primary um, safety concerns that I like, you know, usually discuss with patients. How do you counsel patients about these dangers? So we know that it's usually, there's specific recommendations for that. We know that it's like if you have a product that you're charging often, charging overnight, or if it is not a reliable battery, that's something that they need to be concerned about. So it's just like, Again, I, I asked them to read the package insert if they have any with the device itself on what the charging instructions are. And also, just if it's overheating, just be aware. So those are like the two things. Vaping is certainly a rapidly developing field. How should providers stay up to date? So 
a lot of this data is more targeted towards teens right now. So there's a lot of information about the different products and the dangers associated with these products on the FDA and CDC websites. ACAP and the American, let's see, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and American Academy of Pediatrics, they all have like websites dedicated to this particular topic. So a lot of information about the devices, harms are on there. There's not a lot of recognized websites and resources out there that proactively discuss the harms and benefits of it as well, where we are able to provide patients with information that helps them make better decisions at the end of the day. That's just something I think we have to continue to work on. And it, it is a controversial topic because I think from a policy perspective, we tend to think about it's always about either banning these products completely or setting age limits, but we're not thinking of like regulating the market as such and to think about how to make proper recommendations. But hopefully with the UK NHS system doing this, we might see a difference in the future. But unfortunately, to answer the original question, there aren't resources that talk about managing the risk versus benefits. Mm -hmm. It's more about just what the risks are and don't do it. Definitely. Before we end, I wanted to wrap up this discussion by talking about advice we can give to a patient who vapes THC. The CDC says that the only way to definitively avoid vaping-associated lung injury is not to use these devices at all. But if patients are going to vape THC, it is recommended that they do not use products obtained off the street. It's important to encourage patients to avoid sources that they don't know and to get devices from dispensaries whenever possible. Printed Interview is available for subscribers to read in the Carlat Addiction Treatment Report. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. Subscriptions also come with full access to all the articles on the website and CME credits. And everything from Carlat Publishing is independently researched and produced. There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. The newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads, and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust. Go to www.thecarlatreport.com to sign up. You can get a full subscription to any of our four newsletters for 30% off using the coupon code LISTENER. And don't forget to sign up for a new psychiatry podcast, CME product, to earn credit for this episode, previous episodes, and future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening and have a great day.